How do you develop algebraic thinking? By the end of this episode, you should have three or maybe four different approaches to it. My name is Eric Normand, and I help people thrive with functional programming. So I, I've been getting a bunch of questions along the lines of, how do I develop level three thinking? Uh, so I'm, I'm writing a book, and to do that, as part of writing the book, I'm, it's a book about functional programming. Uh, and so I'm trying to kind of organize the material. Functional programming is a big, broad field. So I have to choose what to teach and what not to teach. And I've organized functional programming uh, into three levels, or as I am probably should call it functional thinking. Uh, so the first level is where you are able to distinguish actions from calculations and data. So you're, you can spot side effects and you're pretty uh, good with immutability and you know how to solve problems without resorting to side effects like global mutable variables, things like that. You can move stuff around and, and isolate the calculation from the action, that kind of thing. Uh, level two gets a little bit uh, more sophisticated. You're able to do higher order thinking. So you're using higher order functions, higher order actions, you're using first class actions and even first class state if if uh, if you need to and this lets you do stuff like data transformation pipelines with map filter and reduce things like that okay now then there's level three which is what we're talking about today and this I'm calling algebraic thinking um, I'm I've also thought about calling it uh, because algebraic thinking just brings up all sorts of questions uh, like why algebra you know this isn't high school math you know those kinds of those kinds of uh, associations with the term algebra it's about building composable models um, is maybe a better way of talking about it uh, but it's a third level where you're building very robust abstractions and al I mean, basically algebras, which I explained in the last episode, so you should, you should look that up. But I've been getting a bunch of questions about how to develop this. Now this whole show has been me exploring these ideas so that I can figure out how to put them into the book. And so this is another exploration. I'm not sure. I don't know. This part is the last part of the book. It is the part that I've worked on the least. Um, and so uh, these are really rough, which is cool. You get to see them really early. Um, so here are three approaches that uh, approaches to uh, kind of self-study to get to level three. All right, here, here we go. Um, the first one I'm going to bring up is property-based testing. 
Uh, you're probably familiar with unit testing or example-based testing where you say give some arguments to a function and tell it uh, tell the system what to expect and that's your test right you give like specific values in property-based testing you don't give specific values those are generated randomly and you have to give a a function basically that will tell the system whether you know that the system under test got the right answer um, and so this is called property-based testing because you're basically developing properties like algebraic properties that your function must obey must uphold so your properties so like let's just really quick because I don't want to teach property-based testing right now I, I just want to give it as an example but if you were going to test the sort function okay like you write a new sort um, you could develop you could test that with two properties one is that the returned list you know you call sort and you get a list back that that list is in order okay but there's another property you need which is that the return list is a permutation of the argument that you pass to sort the input list and with those two properties you kind of covered the whole behavior of of that function and you notice you you could test it with examples you could give it like the empty list okay the empty list sorting the empty list gives you the empty list sorting a one gives you a one sorting the list two one gives you the list one two and you could give all the examples but you never have to think a higher order right you you have somewhere in the back of your mind that it's got to be the same elements and you have somewhere in the back of your mind that it's got to be sorted when it comes out but what you 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 haven't uh, thought about how to write that down how do you actually write a test that says for for any input list the output list is in order what is what does it mean to be in order how do I how do I um, test that it is actually in order likewise how do I test that this list is a permutation of another list how do I write that down and those kinds of thinking where you're you're you have to deal with not just a given list but every list any list each and every list uh, that is the kind of thinking that gets you to that next level okay you start to have it's, it's sort of like first order logic it's not just it's not just a and b it's for all a uh, a is a arrow b you know like it's it's like a different level of um, of thinking and by doing property-based testing I think you really force your mind to go there because it's all mental stuff right it's all mental skills we're not talking about some like very uh, concrete thing it's all in your head 
um, very related, this number two, is algebraic properties. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, in the functional programming world uh, about categories, category theory. And I think this is a similar, similar uh, reason to learn them, uh, to learn categories as well as algebraic properties. Same idea. Uh, they are very succinct truths about certain operations. They're expressed very in very small, uh, you know, small formulas, and their relationships between a function and itself, or a function and another function. So, just as an example, uh, I could say if I could say a function f is is commutative if f of a and b is equal to f of b and a. So it's a relationship, it's an equality, right? And it's of that one function f with itself. Okay, so it relates how this function should operate like in a totally abstract sense. We didn't say what A was. We didn't say what B was. We said we're basically saying for all A and all B that are valid arguments to that function, then this should be true. And so we're thinking at a much ab more abstract level, at, at a sort of algebraic level, where you can start talking about F of A and B that it's it, it you don't have to say f of 1 and 7 right to some very specific numbers you're talking about all numbers a and b or any numbers a and b uh so that's uh, it's the same thinking right but it's a different approach you study algebra you start to see the that things can have meaning without being specific right addition has you can say a plus b because you've been to algebra class right you you sat through it you did all the exercises and now you you get that there's stuff that you know about a plus b even though you don't know a or b okay so that's the kind of thinking that that you need to get to get to level three um all right another one the third one this one this one is much more uh, difficult material, but it is material. It is like something I can link you to that you can watch, whereas the other two are a little bit more just like general concepts. Um, the third thing is called denotational design. And this is uh, basically some talks and some papers by Connell Elliott He's big in the Haskell community. Um, he gave a really good talk. It's kind of like a workshop. It's like two, two hours and 20 minutes of him stepping through his thought process, which he calls denotational design, for building a graphics system. Okay. Um, and 
I've watched it many times, <laughs> and I think that that is the best uh, resource available for understanding the uh, the mindset of from first principles designing something like that. So some notable things about it. Um, the first one is that he is working with the type signatures of the function. So the function signatures, what arguments does it take? What does it return? Totally never shows a single implementation of, of what an image is. And the fact that he can walk through slide after slide of code with no implementation, he's just showing the function signatures. That is the level you need to get to. Now I have a whole thing on types, which I'm about to say after I finish with denotational design. I'm not saying you need types. I'm not. Um, what I'm saying is that he was thinking at the level of this function does this. And I can talk about it and how it behaves without showing the implementation, right? And he starts from first principles. He builds a type for image. What is an image? And then he starts showing this how you could implement um, some uh, a, 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 like a combinator that acts on the image, right? Like how do we overlay two images? And how do we um, have a mask, you know, where like a shape, a region is shown through and then the rest isn't shown, right? Or how do we have a, uh, add a background color on a certain transparent color, right? So all these operations, he does show how they are simply implemented as long as you have this uh, very simple notion simple but elegant simple like you know it's a very elegant notion of what an image is and you never know how he implemented image which is what where you need to get to you need to be able to think about the operations on image without thinking about the concrete implementation right so image in his in his uh system an image isn't an array of pixels because you've already um, limited yourself to a certain representation. He has said, well, let's not even implement it yet so that we can talk about the kinds of operations we want to be able to do in the abstract. Okay, you notice I'm trying to get at something, um, uh, something I mean, almost in ineffable right without using the term algebra <laughs> uh, by with all these these three examples the property-based testing the algebraic properties the denotational design you're able to think about the system without caring about how it's implemented that's the algebra part you're thinking of uh, you in sort of static reasoning you can look at the at the expressions that you can build out of this algebra and reason about them 
All right, uh, a, a couple people uh, asked if this was something that um, that types help with, um, and I mentioned that Connell Elliott uses the types to to talk about functions without having to implement them. Uh, so this is. This is a, you know, I don't want to get into the, you know, typed versus untyped debate, not in this episode. Uh, but I don't think the types are necessary in the language you write them in. I think that this is all stuff that's happening here. Uh, what the types do help you with, though, if you used a strongly typed language, a statically typed, strongly typed language like Haskell, what you get is the discipline for free. You are forced to internalize the type system. And the types, what you're internalizing that helps is a few things. That helps with this kind of thinking. Uh, one is the case-based reasoning, case-based thinking. So in Haskell, if you have multiple cases in your algebraic data type, um, there's like a warning or you can turn it into an error if you forget one of your cases, right? So I suggest turning it into an error. So you always have to deal with all the cases, okay? And so what that makes you do is, is make sure that you're covering the whole thing, that you create a total function, right? At least it helps. Makes you th it makes you think about that. I, I'm, I'm going to make this function work for all values of this type. And that that is something that I see uh, people not doing in the, the untyped world that they could learn better from. To sit, you know, they'll have to do it themselves, <laughs> you know, uh, with internal discipline, but sit and really make sure that the all the all the bases are covered the whole f the function works for all values because you don't want corner cases that's a that messes up your algebra another thing is pushing information into the type what do i mean by that uh so some functions don't work for negative numbers okay so there's no built-in type in Haskell for non-negative numbers, but you could make one, and it it wouldn't be hard. It's a it's a common exercise to do. It's a few lines, and then you have this type that represents non-negative numbers. Great. What is a little harder, and and speaks to the level three reasoning. Or level three thinking, the algebraic thinking, is to realize that when you are using that type, you don't need to care where it came from. It came from somewhere. And you, as uh, when I'm programming this function, when I'm implementing this function, and it has that type, you know, it's a function that takes a non negative integer, I don't have to care where it came from. I'm not thinking about that. I just know that this type guarantees XYZ. So I'm pushing that information into the type. 
And that kind of encapsulation is also part of it, that I don't really have to worry about where it comes from. I can, I can let that be for now. I'm encapsulating that knowledge, this, this functions, this functions functionality. Um, Connell Elliott actually uh, once said that one of the cool things about numbers and one of the reasons why they're so useful is if you have the number seven, you can't know how you got that seven. You don't know if it was three plus four or five plus two or one plus six or, you know, 14 times times 0.5 or whatever. You don't know where it came from. So it's equal to every other seven, regardless of where it came from. And that is, um, that's it. That's level three, <laughs> right? I, I don't know how else to say it. If you're thinking in those terms, like, I don't care where this comes from. I don't care how it got generated. That is level three. Um, just to bring back like the video example, the video, I've been developing this example over several episodes. Um, when I'm concatenating two videos, I don't care where the videos came from. I want to be able to concatenate them regardless of where they came from. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't care. Okay. That is, that is what I'm talking about where you don't care where it came from. I could have, like, if you start in the wrong place, you could say, well, a video is a file on disk that has a sequence of frames, right? And so now when I'm developing concatenate, I'm, I've brought all of this um, concrete stuff to concatenate. So I might think, oh, to implement concatenate, I uh, I open up a new file, copy the existing frames, and then add the other frames to the end of it. Like, and so you're you're you've already kind of lost the abstract game, right? And we do that before level three. We do that way too much, where we're actually thinking about how to implement it way too fast, way before we've thought about what should it mean? What should it do? How does it relate to the other operations uh, that are allowed? Okay. Um, so types also, when you start working with types, the types, uh, this is a thing that I've experienced in Haskell where if the type starts getting complicated, then you know you've got a problem. If you've got seven fields on your type, like now there's something wrong. You are, you are doing, you're not really doing this kind of algebraic thinking. The type has become too complex. It's going to be impossible to do this kind of smooth, elegant algebra anymore. So when you push information into the type, you've got a signal for how complex the thing is. Okay. Well, um, that's really all I've got about how to get to level three. Um, part of it is pointing at it. 
you know, trying to point at it to, to people who are not there. Um, and part of it is to try to use things that are there that you could go learn right now that will, that will help you. That'll help you get the ideas to get there. Uh, so my, my challenge as the author of a book who's, that's trying to get people there is to come up with, with good examples, uh, good scenarios where this is useful. <laughs> it's not just some abstract notion. And uh, also the exercises will get you there. You can see the benefit because it is a feeling, you know, it's not something, uh, it, there's a gray line that you cross and, uh, at some point you think, wow, this is a really solid algebra, no corner cases, uh, very small and elegant. I can think abstractly about it. It's just some, some invisible line that you cross at some point. Okay. Uh, if you like this episode, uh, you can find all the old past episodes at lispcast.com slash podcast. There you'll find audio, video, and text versions of all the episodes. You'll also find links to subscribe, whether it's on your podcast player or uh, YouTube or however you want to consume it. And also links to social media where you can get in discussion with me. Um, that's all I've got. This has been my thought on functional programming. I'm Eric Normand. Thank you for being there and rock on.